Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey y'all, welcome back. Today we're going to head over to Edisto Island out in South Carolina, just south of Charleston. Well, while we're there, we're going to revisit a story that I actually worked on a long time ago when we first started the podcast, but I just never felt like we quite did it justice, so it hasn't been available to anyone outside of our Patreon supporters for quite some time. Now, this is not that episode in any way, shape, or form. It's new research, almost an entirely new script, the whole deal. In fact, I don't even bring it up in the first place because you might recognize the story if you've been listening for a while or you read creepypastas. It is the tale of Julia Legree. But before we head into that heaping pile of humidity that is this cemetery in the low country, I just have a couple of quick reminders. I still have a ton of stuff going on this summer. I'll be giving ghost tours down here in Franklin, Tennessee, and attending some conferences all over. So if you're interested in hanging and talking ghosts, please head over to the website southerngothicmedia.com and visit the live events page for more info. Next month, I'll be in Illinois and Texas. So check that out and come back every now and then to the page because hopefully we'll be adding even more stuff to the schedule in the next few months because... Y'all, I just love telling stories, and it's such a blast meeting people who enjoy listening. So with that, let's go ahead and get on down to the South Carolina shores. Edisto Island sits in the waters of the Atlantic Ocean, just 42 miles southwest of Charleston. Its 78 square miles of beautiful beaches and fertile farming land 
are part of a chain of over 100 barrier islands known as the Sea Islands, which stretch along the eastern coast of the United States from South Carolina down to northern Florida. Prior to European settlement, Edisto was used seasonally for fishing camps by the indigenous tribes of the region, but by the time of British colonial rule, they became extinct. By the end of the 18th century, the British colonists that lived here began harvesting timber and farming indigo and rice, as well as exporting deer skins and cattle hides to Europe. But the real wealth came to Edisto Island after the American Revolution, when the newly minted American plantations began farming a highly profitable form of cotton known as Sea Island cotton. Well, this incredibly silky and highly lucrative crop has extra-long fibers, properties similar to the well-known likes of Egyptian cotton, making it one of the most valuable exports in the world at the time. The demand back in Europe, combined with the invention of the cotton gin, made these planters of Edisto wealthy beyond belief. Of course, just as it was in much of the American South, this lucrative economy was being subsidized through the heavy use of slave labor. There were 1,692 enslaved people residing on Edisto in 1790, and only 223 white men and women. This disparity grew over the next 70 years, as this lucrative crop made these planters vast sums of cash and by the outbreak of the Civil War, the number of enslaved men on the island had increased to over 5,000. One of the most profitable of these plantation owners was a man by the name of William Seabrook, whose beautiful home still stands today his legacy there is nothing compared to the century-old urban legend that surrounds the tragic loss of his daughter, Julia, a young woman who, according to some, was interred in the family mausoleum far too soon. My name is Brandon Schecksneider, and you are listening to Southern Gothic. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw... (gasps) 
Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she was, Or call the police. Or call the police, <laughs> like she should have, exactly. What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then from beneath the Hollywood sign is the gin joint for you. Julia Georgiana Seabrook was born on November 18, 1829, to Captain William Seabrook and his second wife, Elizabeth Emma Eddings. Her father was one of the richest men in South Carolina, having made a fortune operating several plantations, as well as a steamboat line that traveled between Charleston and Savannah. But of all the captain's properties, his crown jewel was the plantation home that was built on Edisto Island in 1810 and was designed by James Hoban, the same architect who designed the White House in Washington, D.C. This two-and-a-half-story federal-style home was where young Julia grew up. Little is known of her early life, but in 1848, she married a man by the name of John Berwick Legree. Julia was about 18 at the time, and John was 28. And like her father, he too was a prosperous planter and the owner of the Berwick Legree Plantation. As most of these wealthy planters did, they split their time between Charleston and Edisto, and together they started a family. Unfortunately, tragedy was right around the corner. In 1852, while visiting her relatives at their home in Edisto Island, 22-year-old Julia Legree fell ill. What likely began as a sore throat quickly turned more severe with the onset of a fever, a fierce barking cough, and a swollen throat that hindered her ability to breathe. The local doctor was called, and upon examination, he found whitish-gray patches in her throat. The diagnosis was not good. Julia had been struck with diphtheria, and there was little that they could do for her. So the family waited and prayed, hoping that she would recover. But eventually, Julia just slipped further away, deep into a coma, and after many days and nights passed, their worst fear was realized. Julia succumbed to her fate. After the doctor declared her deceased, the family moved quickly to say their goodbyes and ready their beloved's remains for burial. This had to be done fast for two reasons. First, diphtheria was highly contagious and they hoped to prevent any further infections from spreading. Second, the heat and humidity of Edisto Island meant decomposition of her body would take place rather quickly. A sight that no one prepared to see. 
So according to legend, the beautiful young mother was prepared for burial the same day that she died. She was lovingly dressed in her favorite gown and then taken to the Legree family mausoleum at the Edisto Island Presbyterian Church. Her body was placed inside the beautiful rust-colored structure and then the large marble door was firmly shut and securely locked in place. A grim reminder of the finality of death. But some believe that the story did not end when that mausoleum door was shut. It is said that in the week following Julia's burial, the faint sound of weeping and screaming could be heard emanating from the church cemetery. Yet no one walked the grounds to see if they could find the source. The Legree family mausoleum was not reopened for over a decade following Julia's death. But when her oldest brother was killed during the Civil War, his body was brought back to Edisto Island for burial and that large heavy door was opened once more. But upon doing so, it is said that a clatter of bones was heard and a horrific scene uncovered. The remains of Julia's bodies were not inside the coffin where her family had laid her to rest, but were instead decomposed and crumpled near the foot of the mausoleum's door, still wearing that beautiful dress that she'd been buried in. To make matters even worse, on the interior side of the door were long scratches from her nails that were made during her desperate but futile attempts to escape. It seems that Julia Legree had been buried alive. Despite the shock and horror over the discovery of Julia's remains and the truth of her fate, the family could do nothing more but bury the girl again. And once more, the heavy mausoleum door was closed tight and locked. But it was not long after that when Julia's family, still reeling from this brutal discovery, visited the cemetery again to pay their respects. And to their surprise, the mausoleum door was wide open thinking that it simply hadn't been secured properly. They shut it again and relocked it. But weeks later, the local clergyman noticed that the door was open once again. He ordered it to be shut and secured. But this was not the last time that this order would be placed. It happened over and over again. No matter how tightly the door was shut or supposedly unbreakable the chains and locks were, it was never enough. The door continued to open. So finally, the family admitted defeat and the door was removed entirely. For many, it is believed that Julia's spirit was finally able to rest in peace with the knowledge that she was no longer locked away in that wickedly hot and humid tomb. Others, however, say that her spirit kept the door from staying sealed to ensure that no one else in her family should ever suffer the same tragic fate that she endured. 
legend of Julia Legree has been passed down for generations, likely due to the fact that it brings into focus a far-reaching human anxiety, the fear of being buried alive. This theme has been explored throughout time in a plethora of different mediums, but it seems to have first appeared in the early writings of Pliny the Elder, a Roman author, naturalist, and military commander. He wrote, quote, Such is the condition of humanity, and so uncertain is men's judgment that they cannot determine even death itself. This fear, known as taphophobia, reached peak public consciousness in the 19th century. And as we discussed in our episode, The Premature Burial of Octavia Hatcher, it was a fear that even President George Washington has been recorded as having. Despite an increase in the development of the medical profession at this time, the challenge of definitively identifying death did still exist, although the standards hardly evolved, which included holding a mirror or glass beneath the nostrils to see if someone was breathing, or touching the skin of the person with a piece of heated metal for several seconds to see if there was a physical reaction. Infamously, Edgar Allan Poe addressed the topic in several of his works. First, in the 1839 short story, The Fall of the House of Usher, and then again in 1844's The Premature Burial. It is in this story that the narrator states, quote, it may be asserted without hesitation that no event is so terribly well adapted to inspire the supremeness of bodily and of mental distress as his burial before death. But Poe was hardly the only author to explore the fear. By 1896, the dread of premature burial grew so large that organizations were formed to address the concern, including the London Association for the Prevention of Premature Burial. As part of their mission, the association publicized the hazards of hasty internments and distributed pamphlets that told stories about close calls. They also encouraged the use of coffins with built-in safety devices and pressed for more morgues and mortuaries to be built as the only true way to determine if a person had indeed died was to wait and see if the remains began to rot. And these facilities would provide a location precisely for that. But was there truly a legitimate and widespread danger of being buried alive? That's unlikely. In a 1904 publication of the British Medical Journal, it was reported, quote, the majority of alleged occurrences by which such fears are bolstered up prove upon examination to be either old wives' fables or stories from dubious American sources, and in both cases to be evidence of a character which would scarcely be quoted in support of any serious proposition. As for the legend of Julia Legree, there are certainly elements to the tale that provide a memorable story. But the question is whether or not it too is an old fable or is based in fact. We'll explore this question and more after the break. Thank you. 
Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Julia Legree died on April 15, 1852. And although some of the older variations of the tale claim that she was a young girl at the time of her death, even calling her little Julia, she was in fact a 22-year-old mother. Diphtheria is most frequently blamed for the tragedy. For centuries, this horrific disease was a major cause of illness and death among children in America. The extremely serious bacterial infection spread simply and easily from one person to another through the air when an individual coughs or sneezes. Once transmitted, the infection quickly and methodically creates a thick coating of dead tissue in the throat or nose, leading to severe difficulty in breathing and sometimes paralysis, pneumonia, and even lung failure. Today, the disease is practically non-existent in the developed world. But back in the decades leading up to the Civil War, not much was known about it, how to prevent it, or even worse, how to treat the inflicted. Whether or not this was in fact the cause of Julia's death is unknown. There's thus far been no documentation discovered to support the claim. In fact, nothing other than oral tradition even attempts to identify her cause of death at all. As for her internment in the family tomb, there's no evidence to support the claim of premature burial. While the story purports that her family had discovered her remains crumpled on the floor after reopening the mausoleum between 10 to 15 years after her death, the reality is that her son, Hugh Swinton Legree, was interred there only two years later. Not a Confederate brother, as oral tradition claims. Hugh died at the age of six in December 1854, also from an unknown illness. 
and he was followed by his father, Julia's husband, John, not long after in 1856. John was 37 years old. One would assume that had there been anything strange following these internments, for example, a grim discovery, there would more than likely have been documentation, as newspaper articles would have jumped at the chance to tell the tale of such a tragic event to have struck the lives of one of Charleston's most wealthy families. Yet there are no stories or even vague mentions that any such tragedy occurred. With this in mind, the only question that remains was if it was even possible for Julia Legree to have been buried alive and then escape the tomb, only to find herself trapped behind a locked door. The style of the Legree Mausoleum is somewhat different than what may be expected. Normally, a tomb such as this would have burials in or along the walls of the structure. In contrast, the Legree tomb appears to have a single burial crypt in the floor. This floor crypt, where the casket would be interred, was then covered by what appears to have been a slightly raised cement slab. If Julia Legree had been buried in a coffin in the crypt below the slab on the floor, and she had awoken after being buried alive, not only would she first have had to broken out of the casket, but she then would have had to have pushed aside that concrete slab that lay above her, likely in a weakened position. The amount of effort required to do this would have most certainly far exceeded anything Julia was capable of. As for the divots in the mausoleum's marble door that the story claims were left by Julia's fingernails as she scratched at it in her attempts to escape, it's unlikely that a single person's nails would have been able to leave marks of any lasting significance on stone as heavy as marble. Perhaps at some time there were strange marks on the door, which could have encouraged such an element to be introduced into an entirely true story. But unfortunately, that original door is no longer there to examine. They're believed to be accurate. The headstones in the Legree crypt are probably the most influential evidence as to what occurred on Edisto Island. The marble markers are set in the back wall of the structure, and they indicate that there are only three members of the family buried in the J.B. Legree tomb. First was Julia, interred in 1852. The second was her son Hugh in 1854. And finally, John, who died in 1856. So if Julia was in fact the first in this tomb, was it built solely for her upon her death? If so, one would assume that her burial may not have been rushed. On the other hand, it may have been built after she was laid to rest elsewhere and then moved. Or since it was a family tomb, it may have even been built prior. We will never know. whether or not Miss Julia Legree met her ultimate fate before her burial 
is unknown. But this has not stopped many from believing that strange things do happen at the Legree family tomb. Visitors are said to have captured images of faces and photographs taken there. Sometimes they seem angelic and some demonic. Others report that the apparition of a young woman has been seen in the area, walking amidst the beautiful backdrop of this low country island. Most, however, simply report the feeling of a strange energy overcoming them when they visit the tomb. Perhaps it's something letting them know that they're not alone. Or maybe it's the spirit of Julia Legree attempting to protect them from becoming trapped as she had in life. My name is Brandon Schecksnyder, and you've been listening to Southern Gothic. Southern Gothic is an independently produced podcast created by siblings Brianne and Brandon Schecksnyder with the support of listeners like you. This month, we'd like to thank our most recent Patreon supporters, Lauren Cottle, Kelsey Hill, Nancy Williams, and Barbara Terry. If you're interested in joining us and receiving additional content, including ad-free episodes, head over to our Patreon page today. The link is in the show notes. Lucky Lady Shacks. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, What's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.